the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. I was perusing Twitter, as I tend to do. And Daniel Darling, if you remember Daniel, he um, became well-known because he was a representative uh, who lost his job um, recently because he stood up for the vaccine on uh, on TV. And uh, so, yeah, it was – people got to know the name Daniel Darling. And so he wrote the other day about the concept of nuance. And what he said, Aubrey, was like, you ever read something and you just want to yell amen or be Mm -hmm. like, yes, you just said exactly what has been making me so frustrated. Like you Mm -hmm. were able to say it. So that's why I wanted to start here, because he said something that I'd be curious if you feel the same way, because when I read this, I went, "Okay, thank you. Like somebody this needs to be said. He wrote this on Twitter. Uh, This is Daniel Darling. He said nuance. You can be pro-vax, pro-vaccine. He wrote pro-vax. You could be pro-vax and anti-federal mandate. Mm. You could be pro-racial reconciliation and racial justice and also be concerned about some of the toxic elements of what passes for anti-racism. Mm. A lot of partisans want to conflate things. Wow. So that's the tweet right there. Yeah. And I think that, that I don't know where you're at with whether it be uh, social justice or mm-hmm. whether it, it be uh, COVID-19 or whether it just be really dumb debates of evangelicals in the church that they have on Twitter. I feel like we have lost all ability for nuance to yes. say things are often gray. You yep. can be this and this without yep. now being, you know, woke or communist or whatever else. <laughs> right. Uh, or on the other side, a fundamentalist or, yes. or a racist. And, yeah. and that there can be you can hold things that feel like they might be intention at time. I thought his first example was great. I know a lot of people who are pro-vaccine and very uncomfortable with yes. uh, federal mandates or what's happening in schools or yep. whatever else. Doesn't it feel like he put a finger on at least uh, uh, how frustrated do you get with this? Because you could probably hear in my voice, this kind of tapped into something where I was like, I was reading it to my wife. I'm like, you've got to hear this. This mm-hmm. gets at what's going on in my soul right now. I This to me is the common good, mm. meaning we... Our goal, and we may not always do it perfectly, but our goal, our passion really is to bring nuance to the table. Like, And because of that, we often interview people that we either agree with wholeheartedly or don't agree with at all because we want to find nuance. We want to bring the best Christian thought to the table when it comes to hot topic issues. And part of that is just what Daniel Darling is saying, Brian. It's because there are lots of people who hold two things at once all the time. All the I mean, time. It, it may not even be about a big issue. Like this is just human nature to have uh, more than one perspective on something and to yes. hold them simultaneously. Like, I don't know why this is difficult for people to understand, but it is. And I think you are 
I think he he is putting his finger on the pulse of sort of what's wrong and what needs to be made right. Yes. Uh, that we do. I mean, yes. I mean, I feel like I fit into that category. I'm very pro-vaccine. I think everyone should get the vaccine. And also, I do not think the federal government should be mandating it. Right, right. I, I just, I he's, I don't know why we can't get this. Uh, part of it, I think, is because, uh, you know, we talked about this before. Social media rewards those who are polarizing. That's right. And we want that reward. We want that payout. We want that platform. We want that audience. And so it becomes a lot easier to um, be sort of that one-sided person, inflammatory person, rather than what really contributes to the greater good. And that is being able to hold things in tension. Yeah. And what happens is uh, you end up not being able to debate and discuss things. Like if I go, man, I really want people to get vaccinated. But uh, like you said, I don't feel good about these mandates. But if I say that, everyone's going to think that I'm an anti-vaxxer. Or if I say a pro-vax, they're going to think I'm all for them. Well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to keep to myself. I'm never going to tell people. I'm never going to engage conversations. Uh, if if you think that there is a, a racial problem, if you think there is a racism problem in our country, but also have trouble with some things that are being taught yeah. or being discussed on cable news right. or whatever else, right. you're going, well, I, people are going to yell me down and, and start putting me in these boxes. That's the problem. We just mm -hmm. put each other in these mm -hmm. boxes that say, oh, my goodness, I heard Aubrey one time say that she thinks that there's a problem with racism in our right. country. She's completely woke and she's this and she's that. Oh, and that. don't worry, I have heard that. <laughs> I know. And now all of a sudden, or if I get on the radio and I say, you know what, I really think uh, it's time to take the masks off for our kids in school mm -hmm. because I think that's what the sign says. All of a sudden, people are like, you don't believe COVID's a problem. You don't care for people. You're not a good neighbor. Yeah, You're totally. not following the yes. science. You're yeah. not this. And we get into, it's again, arguments and debates and politics become like a game now. And like, mm -hmm. our, well, my team believes X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I have to believe when in reality, and here's what's going to mess with some people, even in theology, Yep. There's a lot of gray area. There's yep. a lot of nuance. There's a lot of disagreement yep. that is healthy for us to discuss. But for some reason, it feels like increasingly as a culture, we are not willing to have these discussions simply because we'll be shouted down. It's almost like we don't have a category for it. Like our thinking is so bounded. It's so either or that we tend to not be able to have a category. I'd like to hear from other cultures on this issue because I wonder if this is particularly American, but it's like we don't have a category for middle ground or for mm -hmm. gray or for, and even though I think a lot of us would say culturally like, yeah, I can see both sides of things. Yeah, I can. That's actually not true at the end of the day when it right. comes down to it. We want to categorize other people. Maybe we don't want to categorize ourselves, but maybe we do. There's some sense of like identity in that. But it's like we need a we need a new category that like allows us to broaden our categories. Yeah, and nothing in our culture right now, like you said, is rewarding nuance, mm -mm. Uh, including talk radio, which you and I are on. Right, like, <laughs> right, right. Talk radio, cable news, politics, sports shows now are debate shows where everybody yells at each other. We don't do nuance well, but if we're going to be the church. And live well together, if we're going to have a healthy society, whatever else it might be, nuance, gray area has to be embraced 
uh, as fuel for discussion. So I'm grateful for Daniel Darling there on Twitter talking yeah, about stuff. nuance, kind of putting words to what a lot of us are feeling. Well, coming up next, excited to have friend of the show, David French. He is the senior editor at The Dispatch, also author of Divided We Fall. He writes uh, prolifically. And so we're going to talk about the uh, the Virginia governor rate, governor's race and what that teaches us about the abortion debate. Uh, we're going to talk about this debate about evangelical elites. We're going to go all over the place with David French next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody, welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. And uh, Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined by a, a legitimate friend of the show. He's senior editor at The Dispatch, uh, writes prolifically in some new places that we're going to talk about here later on. Uh, but we love to have this person on to talk politics, to talk church, all sorts of things. That is David French. David, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me back. Oh, we love having you on, man. So thanks for taking the time. And uh, David, I just want to dive right in. You wrote about this. Uh, but over the last couple of weeks, I guess it's been going on longer than that, but it seems like the last couple of weeks or months over Twitter, there has begun this uh this discussion, this debate within the evangelical world about, I'm using air quotes if people could yeah, see yeah. me on the radio, evangelical elites. And uh, quite frankly, your name gets thrown around a lot of times. I'm sure you enjoy <laughs> that. Uh, David, help the people out there understand what's going on in that argument. What is an evangelical elite? And then more so, what does it say about our current church culture? Yeah. So what is an evangelical elite? I mean, that part of that is the whole debate. Right. Um so what you here's what's really happening is what you have really happening is if you're going to use the term elite, if the term elite means anything, it might mean people who have large platforms or who are highly educated or who have lots of power. So, for example, someone who visited the Oval Office a lot during the mm. Trump presidency, I would say that would qualify as an evangelical elite or mm. someone who might run a seminary or be a seminary professor at an elite, a, you know, a highly ranked evangelical seminary, that would be evangelical elite. Hmm. But that's, you don't want that label these days. <laughs> right. <'Cause, laughs> so you want to be like, no matter how many PhDs you have, or, you know, masters and PhDs, and no matter how, you know, whether or not you're wearing a bow tie and you have a row of fountain pens on your desk <laughs> or whatever it is, you want to say, well, I eat chicken at dumplings at Cracker Barrel. I'm totally <laughs> down with the people, you know? Yeah. And so there's this sort of sense that, um, there is a way to sort of signal that you're with the evangel, you're with most evangelicals. I'm one of you. Hmm. And so this is where you get a lot of that argument. And so then what also happens is you have this big divide amongst a lot of evangelical leaders, say, for example, over Donald Trump, or you have a divide over vaccines, or you have a divide over masks. And one way, and this is a tried and true tactic, by the way, one way to avoid argument is to question motives. Right. Mm, and so what yeah. you have is some think tankers saying to maybe somebody who writes, so I don't know, for the Atlantic or New York Times or whatever. Well, I don't have to address your argument because mm. you just write for the Atlantic or the New York Times for the approval of the world. Okay. So you're, you're selling out your actual convictions. You're an accommodationist. Whereas mm. me, Whereas me, who's, by the way, going along with the crowd in the evangelical world, just to be very clear, yeah. is a 
as a deeply courageous, convictional man of the people. And so this is sort of a dance that's been done that you've seen it in conservative world for a really long time that's moved to evangelical world. It's a it's a derivation of this sort of slur used against conservatives who disagree with other conservatives that, well, you just want to be a part of the Beltway cocktail parties, mm. you know, and so. It's really a kind of a silly way of avoiding an actual argument. Yeah. You you don't have to address with a address a person's points if you can say, Well, you just said that because you want those sweet, sweet New York Times column inches. <laughs> and so that's a lot of what's happening is one set of people who have a platform who've sort of conformed in many ways to an evangelical crowd, and another set of people who also have a platform who disagree with a lot of the other evangelicals. And then rather than deal with the ideas, they're, they're sort of hurling questions about elitism mm. back and forth. Um, David, I think this is so, I think this is so interesting. And I, I, if it's okay, I want to ask you kind of a personal follow-up question. Sure. I'm sure it doesn't feel great <laughs> um, to be called an elitist or an elite or, or what have you. I guess I'm just wondering personally, like in your own soul, you're obviously a mature person, but how do, <laughs> Try you, kind to of, how do you kind of just keep going and be like, okay, I understand what's actually happening here. Like, like give us wisdom on how to keep going when, when you're sort of the butt of some of this stuff. I mean, honestly, this elite evangelical stuff is like the least of my concern. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm serious, you know, yeah. over the last, the last five years, my family has faced death threats. We mm. have faced cyber harassment. We have faced bomb threats. We have faced the most grotesque racist attacks on our youngest daughter. And, you know, frankly, being just called an elitist because I write for the Atlantic is like a <laughs> vacation. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Bless your heart. We got to pray for you, David. <laughs> uh, and David, that makes me think in the last uh, segment, Aubrey and I were talking about the concept of nuance. Daniel Darling had a great tweet about nuance that you can be pro-vax and anti-federal, uh, you know, mandates and you could be this and that. And Aubrey and I were discussing that it feels like within the church, but also our culture as a whole, we can't, we've lost the ability to do nuance. We, we can't see anything as gray. Uh, a, do you agree with that? And B, help our people understand why that's really bad for our culture right now. Yeah. So I would say that, that the inability to see gray is the online world, especially the Twitter world. So mm. It seems like on Twitter, we're way where a disproportionate number to go back to the term elite of America's elites spend their time is on Twitter. And on Twitter, it's as if every extreme has to be answered by an equal and opposing extreme. And so, <laughs> so if you're not an extremist against opposing extremism, well, then you're some sort of squish when maybe the opposing extremism is really bad also, <laughs> you know, yes. so. So, yeah, that, that Dan's exactly right about that nuance is lost, but not in the wider public, interestingly. In the wider public, the data is very consistent and very clear that the vast majority of Americans who do not spend all their time on social media are, they may be liberal, they may be conservative, they may be moderate. In other words, they're not all sort of in the middle, but they're temperamentally very different. In other mm. words, they're much more likely to value compromise. They're much more likely to be exhausted by political combat. They're much less likely to want to even engage in that kind of stuff. Hmm. And so what you have is a minority of Americans 
a really a relatively small minority of Americans, although, you know, if you take 15 or 20 percent of Americans, it's, you know, 60 million people. Um, but it's still 15 to 20 percent who are yeah. just pulling this country apart. Hmm. And then you've got a big number of people who, you know, every every now and then during elections, they'll exert their will. So, for example, you saw voters elect a much more moderate Democrat in New York City. You've seen voters sort of revolting against extremism time and time and time again. But then once they sort of do their revolt against extremism, they disengage again Hmm. and they and the field is conceded back to the competing extremes. And that's kind of this dynamic that we're in. And it's very toxic over time. And especially especially to those who are deeply involved in politics, they're constantly being pulled to the edges by the people they hear from the most, which is you know, their peers in the in the media world. Absolutely. Uh, and we're thrilled that David's going to stay with us. Speaking of kind of the broader conversation, David wrote an article uh, just the other day about what the Virginia election taught America about the new politics of abortion. A lot of fascinating stuff there that we're going to talk about. David, before, uh, in case some people don't stay with us, you've got a new thing called the third rail, a new way that people can read you. I want to make sure that we get that out there before we go to break. Tell us about the third rail. Yeah, so I've started a newsletter at The Atlantic magazine. It's called The Third Rail because Mm -hmm. we're going to try to talk about all the toughest conversations. We're going to try to have all the toughest conversations about the most contentious issues in America. Uh, Tomorrow's newsletter is going to be about masculinity. How how about jumping into that that conversation? And so, uh, yes, it's going to be at The Atlantic. And if you just follow me on Twitter at David A. French, I will be tweeting it out as well as all the content uh, that I write for The Dispatch and, and podcast for The Dispatch. Awesome. You're, you're a busy man, as we like to say. Yes. <laughs> so uh, go ahead and check that out at The Atlantic. Uh, David, just two days ago at the French Press, you wrote uh, what the Virginia election taught America about, quote, the new politics of abortion. Anyone who's been watching the news knows uh, that uh, Glenn Youngkin uh, defeated Terry McAuliffe. So now there's a Republican governor in Virginia. But David, talk to us about what this election taught us specifically, as you say, about the new politics of abortion. Yeah, this was fascinating. This was absolutely fascinating because for the first time in almost 50 years, this gubernatorial election could have a real impact on abortion rights in a state. Uh, And the reason is that the Supreme Court is considering this term, whether or not to overturn Roe v. Wade. And it's also been reviewing whether or not this Texas law that bans abortion after a heartbeat is detected can remain in effect. And so Essentially, what's happening is beginning in 1973 with Roe v. Wade, the question of whether or not abortion could be legal or substantially regulated in any given state was taken away. No, no state legislature could ban abortion. They couldn't substantially regulate abortion. Abortion had to be legal in all 50 states. Well, if the Supreme Court overturns Roe, then in theory, the governor of Virginia could uh, sign a law banning abortion in a state. Hmm. And so Terry McAuliffe ran millions of dollars of ads saying, if you want to defend abortion rights, you need to vote for me because Glenn Youngkin, although Youngkin didn't adopt an, uh, an abolitionist position, did pledge to adopt far more restrictive, far more restrictions on abortion rights. And so 
McAuliffe spent millions and millions and millions. His anti, his uh, abortion rights ads were um, among his most aired. They aired over a thousand times. He campaigned in an abortion clinic. Wow. Um, Washington Post, New York Times, NPR all said this was going to be a big test of the new politics of abortion. Well, so here comes the exit poll results. And it turns out that only 8% of Virginians said abortion was their number one issue. Only wow. 8%. The next lowest was 15%, So uh, was which was coronavirus or taxes. So um, it was the lowest by far. And mm. of the people who listed it as their most important issue, most of those voted for the Republican, Glenn Youngkin, 58% to 41 And so there are a couple of takeaways here. One is, even with abortion rights... Um, really much more in question than any time in, in almost 50 years, a very small fraction of Americans or Virginians put that as a number one issue. And of that small fraction, even in a relatively blue state, most of them were pro-life. Hmm. And so uh, that was fascinating and completely, remember what I just said about like being online and yeah. often if you're online, you don't understand where most people are. This is the kind of thing that online abortion is fiercely contested. Offline, it is receding in importance to people. And I think there are some pretty interesting reasons why that is. Mm. I would like to hear what some of those um, those <laughs> yeah. reasons are, David. And I know you I know you kind of mentioned in your article, like why the indifference? Can you unpack that for us? Yeah, so I just totally fed you that next. No, thank you, you, by the you way. Did. That was, that was very easy. So thank yeah. you. Yeah. Um, so really, it's a couple of things are happening on the ground in in America. One is that abortion has become less prevalent, almost continually less prevalent over forty years. So abortion rates peaked in the early eighties, and they've been descending ever since to the point where abortion is now much less common than it was. When Roe was decided, and when Roe was decided, abortion was illegal or substantially restricted in most places in the country. So there's a whole lot less abortion. And then the other thing is, is that there has been one of the best studies ever done, because polling about abortion is notoriously difficult. Uh, People don't know what Roe means. They, depending on how you ask the question, they're going to answer differently. And so there was this fantastic Notre Dame study where they took several hundred Americans or a couple hundred Americans, put them and just had 75 minutes at least of conversations with each with each one, where they just really sort of shared their heart on where they were on the abortion issue. And they said that of all of the 217 that they interviewed, not one of them, even the most pro-choice, talked about abortion as a desirable good. Mm. Not one of them. So wow. they said it was hard or serious, or not happy Mm. at all. And so what this means is this is a right that fewer people are um, exercising. And if they are exercising it, they're not happy about it. And so that is a a combination that does not spell out political intensity. Hmm. Um, Most rights that people get intensely exercised about, they value the right a great deal and relish its exercise. So think about free exercise of religion, for example. You value the free exercise right, mm. and you relish going to church. So um, in this instance, 
with abortion rights, fewer people are exercising those rights. And even when they exercise them, they consider it hard, serious, and definitely not a desirable good. And so what that means, I think, just in the real world and the way real people live their lives, that doesn't add up to political intensity. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, let me switch over to one other thing that you wrote, David. Uh, back on October 24th, uh, you, you wrote about there's no right people to hate. And it, it, <laughs> it was framed around the Alec Baldwin story where mm. – and Aubrey and I talked about how disgusting we found it that immediately in the days following, there were people who didn't like Alec Baldwin tweeting about him and, and just using it to score some sort of points. But you talked about – this in relationship to the political uh, Christian political community uh, yeah. and, and how it's gone off the rails and maybe the choice that we have. And you end your article by saying there are no right people to hate. I'd love for you to talk to people out there about uh, how we as Christians need to do a better job engaging and that there's never a time to, like you said, to be hating people. Yeah. So this is triggered by um, J.D. Vance, who's a Senate candidate from Ohio and, and one of the more prominent sort of the new right um personalities and intellectuals tweeted at Jack Dorsey, uh, let Trump back on. We need Alec Baldwin tweets. This is after <laughs> Alec Baldwin had, yeah. you know, tragically and accidentally killed a member of his crew, a cinematographer and wounded another one. And he also in an earlier interview had said when he was talking about sort of his populist run for Senate that uh, our people hate the right people. Mm. Uh, and that's that is the actual quote. I think our people hate the right people. And it's this us against them, them mentality that we see in politics that if you move it out into almost any other category of life, Christians would sort of automatically rebel against it. They would say, no, 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 no. That's not how you treat people. But politics has become so intense and so extremist that you begin to see even Christians arguing against civility and decency itself mm. that that's a, you know, if you're if you're for civility and decency, that's, you know, that you're a sucker, you're a loser, you're going to be steamrolled. And and that sadly, that view has gained a lot of purchase sort of out there with a lot of politically active Christians like we have to fight fire with fire. And the problem is that's completely and totally counter to it's totally counter to scriptural admonitions about loving your enemies, blessing those who persecute you. Yeah. And and it builds off very hard heart um, mm -hmm. towards your political opponents and it builds real animosity towards your political opponents. And that is not only wrong, but sort of dangerous to ourselves, to, to the people that we can become. And and so I, I, I introduced this term that my Sunday school teacher introduced to me called orthocardia. Um, we've heard of orthodoxy, which is right belief, and orthopraxy, which is like practice, right practice. But orthocardia means having a right heart. Oh, that's mm. good. Wow. And and we have to approach the po political sphere, as with all spheres, with the right heart. Oh, that's good. Aubrey and I are now in a race to see who can get orthocardia into our next sermon quicker. I was literally <laughs> just writing it down as you speak. <laughs> we are on a race. Again, David French, he, David writes in all sorts of different places. Let me encourage you to follow him on Twitter at David A. French, at David A. French. There you'll see uh, his various blog posts. David, remind our people we did this before the last break, but tell us about the third rail one more time and maybe all the best places people can go to find you. Yeah, so you can find me at theatlantic.com. Uh, I've got a new newsletter called The Third Rail. Just Google it. You can find it. 
I also write, I'm a senior editor at thedispatch.com where I have a newsletter called The French Press. And if you're wondering all the ways you can find me and and you're on Twitter, although I don't recommend anyone be on Twitter, <laughs> you, can, you can follow me at David A. French. That's right. And if you choose to go into kind of the cesspool that is Twitter, David is a great follow. <laughs> He's I, a wonderful follow. Thank you. He's a thank wonderful you. follow. David, we're always grateful. I know you got lots going on, so we're always grateful for your time. Thanks for joining us again. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm, and we are so glad that you're with us today. One of the things that you and I talk or have talked about quite a bit is, um, one, the Mars Hill podcast. That's right. But we've talked about other sort of versions of the Mars Hill podcast, essentially this I don't know what you even want to call it, genre of books and podcasts and media that is um, from evangelicals, but really sort of looking at evangelicalism in a pretty critical light in some, Mm -hmm. sometimes in a way that's super, super helpful. And I think super, super healthy for the church other times in a way that is I don't know, maybe starting to feel like we're being a little too scathing and a little too hateful of ourselves. And I don't know if that's fair or not. It's something that I've been kind of wrestling with for a while, honestly. But interestingly, Scott McKnight sent out an email this morning, and he really was kind of talking about this issue that we need to be able to um, not just tell the success stories, right? But also not just tell the stories of all of the things we've done wrong. Somehow we have to hold both at once and talk about the the beauty and success of evangelicalism, but also talk really honestly about the ugliness and how we can get better. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things that he mentioned, he mentioned, of course, the rise and fall of Mars Hill. There's also the book by uh, Kristen Kobes Dumez, Jesus and John Wayne, which is uh, the subtitle is How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation. So we talked about how really you need to read a book like by John Woodbridge called More Than Conquerors. At the same time, you're going to read Jesus and John Wayne mm. so that you have a perspective that's. I guess more nuanced or more accurate on evangelicalism. And so this is a big question, Brian, but how do we, I mean, I think one question is, what do you think it means that the most popular best-selling books right now, the, the most listened to podcasts are really scathing looks at evangelicalism from within evangelicalism. But then two, like, what do we think about that? What do we do about mm. that? Yeah. The cynical side of me says that, that those are out there right now because people just love outrage. Mm. And yeah, uh, you know, I, Aubrey, this could go one of two ways. And I think it hinges on some words of Jesus, right? Jesus talks about recognizing the plank in your own eye mm-hmm. before, before pointing out the speck in another's. Yeah. If all you're doing is writing or reading or listening to these podcasts to, uh, to tear down some other people who have failed, who have messed up, right? Mark, Mark Driscoll did some bad things yes. and that podcast says that. But if your takeaway from that podcast is, man, I'm a lot better than that dude. Mm. Or uh, what's wrong with the world that something, you know, if it's only about him, as opposed to you even listening to that going, okay, like where, what do I see in my own life that is also problematic? Yeah, what do I see in my good. own life? And I think that's where this grows 
because I, I do think you can read these books and listen to these podcasts or read Twitter and go, man, there's a lot of people burning around me, but I'm doing great. Like, I feel better about myself because I'm not that guy or that yeah. woman or because I'm not in that segment of evangelicalism. If instead it is, hey, let's collectively try to hear more voices and try to make try to be better mm-hmm. uh, as a whole and starts with me. Then I think this kind of niche, if you will, is helpful. But I'm not sure that that's the purpose it is serving. And so I I worry more that it's serving for, um, you know, I think somebody halfway through this rise and fall of Mars Hill, I think there was a blog out discussing outrage porn. Right. That we we love to be outraged. But more than that, we love to point other people's faults out. Like if that's what this is about, that I just want to stand on a soapbox and talk about that person and that person – or the positive of it is, hey, let's bring to light the things that are abusive. Let's bring to light yes. the things that have been destructive. Let's bring to light the things that don't reflect well upon Jesus, both corporately, but also in my own life. Right. Then I think these are helpful. Does that all make sense? Yeah, that makes total sense. I, I think this is where, because I mean, I love the rise and fall of Mars. Like, love you and it. I have talked about it. Like, I'm going to keep listening as long as they're producing podcasts. Like, I, I think it is such a great magnifying glass for ourselves. So I want that to continue. I think here's what I start. Here's where I start to just go, okay, Lord, like give us wisdom because I obviously the church is still the bride of Christ. Right. And the church, whatever expression of the church you're in because of that is still God's, you know, prized possession, still beautiful and still, you know, on mission to make disciples who and be disciples, right? Yeah. So sometimes I this I hope this doesn't come across as too legalistic, but sometimes I start to wonder, have we lost the fear of God when it mm. comes to the way we're talking about his church? Cuz at the end of the day, this is still his like the church is the expression of God's glory on earth. Mm-hmm. So this mm-hmm. is still his dream. This is still his deal. And I think I think maybe what you're saying, and I think maybe as I'm talking, I'm, I'm beginning to make sense of this. I guess if the point is to evaluate and critique so that the church is the most beautiful expression of herself, yes. the most uh, glorifying of God version of herself, then it's a worthwhile end. If it's strictly to destroy, divide, tear down... Um, without any hope and without any recognition of God has put the church on earth for a purpose, then that's when I think we're in dangerous territory. Yeah, I think that's really well put. Like if we're if we're for the church, which again, like you said, is God's idea. Mm-hmm. Like, and I've you know, you always hear people say there's not a plan B. Right. Uh, if this is for the betterment of the church, that we want the church, the bride of Christ, to be all that it can, uh, then it's helpful. But you and I spend a lot of time on this show talking about. The cottage industry that has seemed to rise up of people going just critiquing and like uh, deconstructing and critiquing for Mm. the sake of doing it as opposed to ending up in a more healthy place. And that's not helpful. And I fear that there's going to be more and more and more of that. Like, thankfully, I don't feel like that's been the point of the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast. Remember in the beginning, he kind of said we're at fault for this. Yeah. But the longer it goes on, the more it does, quite frankly, feel like let's hear more about how they messed up. I know. Let's hear more about how it went. I think that's an accurate assessment, Brian. I I agree with that. Yeah. And I'm interested to see how it ends. There's only like two more episodes left. So I'm interested to see how it ends. Um, 
anyway, if you're out there and you're like, I just love to rip the church down, you're not being helpful. In yeah. fact, I think that you're yeah. being um, anti-helpful. How's that for a good <laughs> I like it. If instead we're reading these books, consuming these podcasts, uh, writing blogs in order for the church to wrestle with hard things and come out on the other side yeah. better, then I think it's helpful. But like you, I, I worry that that's not the point, that, yeah. that there's a cottage industry that some people have found some notoriety and quite frankly, some, um, some money through. So, yeah. And I think maybe that's the question we need to ask ourselves. Like at what, at what point is this starting to become idolatry because all roads are leading to like money and platform yep. and what roads are actually leading to a better church. So the, anyway, not something we can answer right now, but something I think we all need to be mindful of is as more and more of these types of books and podcasts, you know, kind of come out and become its own industry. Yep. Well, coming up next, we are joined by a teammate here at AM 1160, Pastor Mark Moore. He's the host of Overcoming Through Grace. We're excited to talk to him about his show and his church, which is doing something very interesting right now. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And we are thrilled because we are joined by a teammate today, Mm -hmm. Pastor Mark Moore. He is the senior pastor of Belmont Bible Church in Downers Grove and the host of Overcoming Through Grace. It is heard weekdays right here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, every weekday at 530 a.m. Mark, we're so glad that you're with us today. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Hey, we want to talk to you about your ministry. We want to, of course, talk to you about the show. But can you tell us a little bit about yourself before we dive in? Sure. I grew up in a Christian home. My father was a pastor. Uh, Felt the call into ministry clearly uh, a little later in life after my wife and I were married. Been pastoring for a little over 13 years. We have two wonderful children, a son and a daughter, and two dogs that keep us busy. But uh, God's been good, and we're very thankful for the life he's given us. That's awesome. And Mark, as we were talking off air, you and I are neighbors, church neighbors here in Downers Grove. Love what you guys are doing. Let's start with the show, though. Overcoming Through Grace, as Aubrey said, can be heard every weekday at 5.30 a.m. right here on the station. Tell a two-part question. Why do you put your energy into a show like this? Like, you know, it takes some energy. And and what is the show? As people listen at 5.30 a.m., kind of paint a picture what Overcoming Through Grace is. Okay. Uh, We started the show, I believe we've been with uh, 1160 for 11 years now. Um, When we first started, we really had no business being on radio. Um, (laughs) We we sounded like we were probably using a tape recorder in a broom closet somewhere. Um, But the opportunity presented itself. Um, The church, when I first came, was about to close its doors. Um, We were trying to breathe new life into the ministry. Uh, the small group of members that were there voted to commit money to the radio ministry, and that was a step of faith. We didn't have money to coming in to cover it. And we, we did a six-month commitment, then we did another six months. Uh, now here we are 11 years later. Uh, it's part of our regular missions budget because uh, the reason we do it is um, it's, it's edited sermons and edited for time from our, our services. And we just, we believe there's power in the word of God and there's power in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so to be able to use whatever opportunity God has given us to reach people. And it's been a blessing over the 11 years hearing from people uh, from time to time 
that uh, it's just it's a God thing where he he brings them right across the dial at the right time for the message of the, the word of God that we were covering at that time. And it's just neat to see God work and to be a part of it. That is so fantastic. And I would love to hear if you have any stories of what you've seen God do through the radio ministry, any stories of impact, would love to hear one or two of those. As I mentioned, I get to hear testimonies from time to time. We have people come out. Uh, my staff and I have a, a joke. It's, it's actually, it's not a joke, It's it's but it's it's a constant. If I'm ever, I don't, I'm not usually gone on a Sunday, but the occasional Sunday I'm traveling, guaranteed somebody will visit our church that's been a longtime radio listener. So if, 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 we don't, if we don't have visitors for a while, I take a Sunday off just so somebody will come visit us. Um, <laughs> that's kind of our running joke. But uh, we've been able to meet some families. Uh, I've been able to uh, hear, hear from people specifically, as I mentioned, how God just used uh, a specific message um, we have some staff that does the editing and, and the uploading and all, all of that for our radio. So there's times when I'll get a letter or an email and I can kind of vaguely remember uh, when we covered that topic or, or maybe something that I don't even remember saying specifically. But to just see how God can use that and continues to use it. Um, it it's not me. It's not them. It's not the radio. It's, it's God working through the technology we have. And it's just neat to see a supernatural power time and time again over the last 11 years. Oh, that's great to hear how God is using this show over and over and over again. Mark, as I said, you and I are in basically the same area. I drive by your church often, and it's an enormous construction project right now, which I'm sure is exciting for you, but also hugely stressful. But you guys are building a, a huge, uh, not huge, but a big building right now for a very specific purpose. Why don't you tell us what's going on at your church right now? Uh, yeah, well, we um, have been praying about this and, and, and the works with uh, our community for many years. Uh, we demolished our existing facilities this last June, which was a huge step of faith. We mm-hmm. are uh, renting from another church for Sunday services. Uh, but our, our purpose is this new facility is for our ministry model of we're going to we have a small Christian preschool and school primarily for our church families that uh, would like to uh, have an alternative uh, for their education with with a biblical worldview. But we've uh, we've looked at the opportunity and we're expanding our preschool to be open enrollment to the community. And, and the purpose of that is we've done VBS uh, for years and we didn't really have the best facilities. So we put all of our budget into costumes. We kind of stole from Disney. Uh, and so now we have an opportunity with this open enrollment preschool to reach the next generation before they become calloused with an atheistic humanistic anti-god mindset Uh, and so we're we're looking to take advantage of that opportunity this facility is going to enable us to have um, basically VBS year-round through our preschool and summer camps and we'll be able to uh, facilitate uh, hundreds of kids a day uh, that we can reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then we can also hopefully be able to reach these families, showing them and sharing with them the love and the gospel of Christ. Oh, that is so fantastic. And then, Mark, something that you mentioned off air, and I, I know because you're in building process, some of your ministries are on pause for a season, but your church has a really active, thriving addiction ministry. Can you talk about that at all? Uh, yes, we uh, we have a, uh, an addictions ministry that will be starting back up when we get into the new facility. 
uh, meets on Friday nights, and it's been it's been neat to see some of the testimonies that have come out of that transform lives. People that had even people raised in Christian homes and believers that uh, had struggled with strongholds and addictions for the most uh, majority of their adult lives. Uh, and, and that's what we do with the addictions program. It's facilitated to finding the answer in Jesus Christ, which we believe obviously he is the way, the truth and the life. He's the answer for eternal life, but he's also the answer for the eternal life that he's given us and how to live that victoriously. And so uh, it's it's a real blessing to be able to see some of the, the testimony of the changed lives that have come through that ministry. That's great. And, and Mark, it's great having you join us. Let me ask you one more question about the building. You told us off air. Amazingly, your congregation is kind of building it yourself. You're doing it yourself. I get I have no other question except to ask, how is that even possible? <laughs> That's amazing. Tell us how that is working right now. Uh, I don't know how that is possible, to tell you the truth. I'll let you know when we finish. Uh, so we're we're working with a, a member from a sister church who built this building up in Wisconsin. Uh, he's our official general contractor. But for uh, budget saving purposes, we're doing a lot of the general contracting as well. So, you know, our foundation, we're not trying that ourselves. You know, excavation, we're contracting with those things. Like, for example, all the structural steel uh, decking and bar joists that have been put up over the last three weeks have been 100% church volunteers, uh, wow. including uh, myself out there. And it's, it's basically you, you trust God, you learn as you go, and it's neat. He brings the people together. Mm-hmm. Now, I will tell you, two weeks before we started assembling the steel, I did not know how we were going to do it. And what I mean by that, I didn't know how we were going to have the staff there, the manpower there. And in those two weeks, we had members from the church take weeks vacation to come and volunteer. We had people with skills that I didn't even know they had come to me on Sunday and say, hey, I'll be there and I'm going to help. And it, it's, God brought it together and, and we'll, it's, it's neat to see and we'll trust them to uh, bring it to completion. Oh, that is so fantastic. Just love seeing God's hand and God's provision at work, even in this building process. Well, you can learn more about the ministry of Belmont Bible Church at BelmontBibleChurch.com. Connect with them on Facebook at Belmont for Christ. That's Belmont, the number four, Christ. And of course, be sure to tune in to Overcoming Through Grace weekdays at 5.30 a.m. on AM 1160. Pastor Mark, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. We hope you're enjoying this Tuesday evening. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And Brian, I don't know that we've ever had a conversation before about the topic of boundaries. Mm-hmm. Is mm-hmm. um, you know, boundaries is kind of one of those buzzwords, I guess, coming from the book Boundaries by Henry Cloud and uh, his co-author. Um, before we dive into this, how, if if someone were to say to you in your church, "What are boundaries, and how do I set healthy boundaries?" Yeah, what would you say to them? Yeah, I think what are boundaries is kind of mm, how to put it your uh, your standards, your rules that you say this is uh, how I'm going to live my life, and so it might be you know what after six o'clock I'm not going to answer the phone because I'm going to be present with my family. That's the, an example of a boundary. Mm. Much deeper than that might be uh, this person in my family has been abusive to me. 
Uh, even though I'm going to work to forgive them, the boundary set is that they will have no actual physical presence in my life again, right? Like, yes, yes. That's kind of the bigger deal when it comes to boundaries. And when we're doing premarital counseling for new new couples who are getting married, this is an important conversation mm-hmm. because you're going, what, is, what are the boundaries in your marriage going to look like? Like Carrie and I had to work through that when we first got married because I'm an extrovert. She's an introvert. Mm-hmm. We have different expectations. Yeah. So, uh, what are those boundaries going to be? Uh, but Aubrey, I do think you and I were type, kind of batting this around a little bit. I think you use the phrase healthy boundaries. Uh, I think there are healthy boundaries that are necessary. Here's my question for you, Aubrey. Are boundaries biblical? Right. I think that is a deeply important question. Because I sometimes wonder, I can see how boundaries, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about boundaries in a minute. I, I can see how boundaries themselves can be very healthy, especially if you're someone who um, tends to allow yourself to be treated like a doormat or let toxic mm. people kind of step all over you or take advantage of you. I can see how boundaries are really re- important or, or boundaries that protect your family like you were talking about. I also wonder if we have taken this too far and used the quote unquote boundaries because it sounds healthy. I've put a boundary here when really all we're doing is like um, using it as an excuse not to love somebody who needs love. Mm. I wonder if Jesus set boundaries. I think that's the right. question that I, that I ask. I do. I mean, we do see him. He, he stands up against the Pharisees, right? There are times when Jesus goes away and takes rest. Yes. There are times when Jesus you know, throws the table over in the temple because he's angry. Like all of those are boundaries. And so I do think we can learn from Jesus what a Christ-like boundary looks like. Um, at the same time, Jesus didn't stay away from people who were needy. Jesus didn't stay away from people who were hurting. Jesus mm-hmm. didn't stay away from people who needed him. And so I, I, I think it's, this is another question that really we've, we've taken as a church as biblical truth. I wonder sometimes if we've taken it too far. Yeah, I, that's where I'm going to land on this, that maybe I think there are biblical boundaries. I think there are times, uh, like you said, Jesus, even for his own sake of rest, he set a boundary, right? He said, I'm going to go away alone yes. uh, and pray. Like there is, that's a simple boundary. I, like you, though, worry that we as Christians might uh, use the term boundary too loosely, like mm-hmm. too too much that maybe it falls under uh, things that where Jesus would want us to step in yeah. or maybe places where it quite frankly just it, um, excuses some laziness on our part. And so uh, I do think we need to wrestle with that. I absolutely believe there are healthy boundaries, absolutely. especially in places where there has been abuse. Yes. Uh, absolutely. I counsel that way. We help people with that. But I do think it's a it's a conversation worth having about to what level are boundaries biblical and and wise as Christ followers. Yeah. And again, if you want to look at Dr. Henry Cloud, Dr. John Townsend's book called Boundaries, we've recommended it to a lot of people in our churches. Yep. It is yep. really helpful to determine what's an actual like legitimate boundary and what isn't. But I bring this up because Ike Miller, he's a pastor um, at Bright City Church. He's the author of a book called Seeing by the Light. He's also the husband of Sharon Hottie Miller, who's been on the show before I got to interview her during my time at Wheaton this summer. But he um, he said, shared on Twitter four types of relational 
boundary problems from the book Boundaries. And here's what those four types of relational boundary problems are. One, you can't set boundaries. Mm -hmm. Two, you can't respect boundaries. Three, you set boundaries against responsibility to love others. I think that's what we're Mm -hmm. talking about here. And then four, you set boundaries against receiving love. That one I think is really interesting. Any of those stand out to you or you want to unpack, Brian? I mean, I think the hardest one for me is the uh, the first one. It's the most obvious one. It's just mm-hmm. a, a difficulty in actually setting boundaries or not so much setting the boundaries, but <laughs> it's the old Seinfeld skit, right? When he talks to the uh, car, uh, the people who rent the cars, you can, you can take the reservation. You just can't hold the reservation, mm-hmm. right? Like I, I know in my life, I can set the boundaries. I just can't hold to the boundaries. Sometimes yes. it's easier to like, Oh, just this one time, just this one time. I'll, you know, uh, I'll kind of go past what mm-hmm. I said I was going to. Yeah. Uh, and that'll frustrate my wife or other people to who are affected by it. So I think that one is, that's the most obvious one for me, but also probably the hardest one for me. Can I set boundaries? Can I hold the boundaries? Mm. So how about for you? You know, I was thinking about this. I actually think I'm really good at setting boundaries. It's almost my like default, like, well, I'm going to set a boundary then. But what I, <laughs> what I'm not good, and this is actually part of setting boundaries, I'm not good at communicating those boundaries. Mm. So I assume people know where they stand or what my boundary is because I've set it. I have actually never told them <laughs> because that feels scary and hard. And that's a conversation that might bring about a conflict. So I think that's something I'm like laughing at myself, but that's something I think I actually really need to grow in maturity in is like, okay, if I'm going to set a boundary with a person or with my schedule or with rhythms in my life, I have to communicate that to the people around me that it impacts or else I'm almost doing them a disservice because they might be confused when suddenly I step away or when suddenly I'm not showing up at the XYZ because I'm a a little bit of a lazy communicator when it comes to this. So that, um, that was a little bit convicting for me. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think for people, it's easy to talk about boundaries. It's easy to to kind of talk these things through. It's hard to hold them. It's yeah. hard to think about them. Uh, but I would say, Aubrey, there, even though we said sometimes we take it too far, there are many people out there who don't take it far enough, right? Yeah. You don't rest. You don't uh, value family time. You don't value your time alone, alone with God, whatever else mm-hmm. it might be. Putting boundaries around those things that are, are most important is, uh, is essential if we're going to be healthy. Uh, and uh, yeah, if we're going to be healthy and moving forward. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, I wonder just real quickly, Brian, this last one, um, uh, another relational boundary problem is you set boundaries against receiving love. What might that look like in somebody's life? I don't, that's, that's an interesting yeah. one. Maybe you can't, maybe you can't hear people's affirmation. Mm. Maybe you can't receive people's generosity yeah. because you don't think you're worthy of it. That Those are the things that come to mind. You kind of set up things that kind of inoculate you from having to even hear good things about yourself or receive from other people. Yeah, I I think you're probably right about that. And and part of that is probably because you do, there's a sense of unworthiness or something. So I thought that was another interesting one. Again, if you want to find out more about boundaries, if boundaries are biblical, what kind of boundaries are healthy, you can buy the book Boundaries. Easy title to remember. Thanks so much for joining us today. We'll be back tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three 
three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.